0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Dr. Nicholas Dimitriades, who has been applying neuroscience in business and education for over 15 years. He is an award winning communication professional, educator, and consultant. He is the author of the books Neuroscience for Leaders, A Brain Adaptive Leadership Approach, now in its second edition, and Advanced Marketing Management Principles, Skills, and Tools. On today's show, we talk about how is artificial intelligence impacting marketing? Why don't people like to or trust the chief marketing officer? And what is neuromarketing? How can we train our brains to act? And what have been some of the major milestones in the field of neuroscience? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. All right, now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Nick, thank you for taking the time to be a guest here on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now I'm super excited about today. You're introduced by a great friend of ours, Nick Larson, who you know is the host of. Brains, there's Silicon Valley Zombies. He's also a host of an amazing clubhouse weekly event. I mean, the guy's everywhere here in Silicon Valley. He's right now, you know, raising a hundred million dollar fund. Great, great guy. So I'm so excited about this interview. Now, first off, Nicholas, can you tell us a little bit about your career path up until this point?
1: So thank you very much for having me, Sean. And uh, Nick, uh, thank you for making this connection. So Yeah, sure. Um, I'm uh, obsessed about the human brain. You know, I'm, I'm completely fascinated for this organ. Okay, I'm showing uh, my head, but it's not only the brain. It's also the nervous system. It's also the body. It's also the environment. You know, we usually say brain, but we actually mean brain, body, environment. I'm completely fascinated with, with this. I come from um, my studies. My first early career steps were in uh, marketing strategy, brand, consumer psychology, you know, back then I was trying so much to help my students as a young academic and my clients to achieve better results in marketing. And very early I realized that we actually do not possess the tools, the models, uh, the approaches to provide predictably reliable results. So it was a little bit uh, based on on luck, and uh, I was never satisfied with it. So, you know, I had a huge internal frustration, dissatisfaction of. You know, is it like this? Is it, you know, we, we, we do as much science as we can, but the other 50% is art. You know, the, the famous marketing adage, like marketing is 50% science, but 50% art. And we can achieve the science part to the maximum, but we miss still 50%. And around 2004, 2005, I saw the light and the light was neuroscience. As soon as I entered neuroscience, I never looked back. I'm up to now with my team, applied neuroscience team. We have tested more than 6,000 brains. From 25 ca- countries around the world, we travel er- everywhere with our neuro devices and, and uh, biometrics devices, and we do a lot of work with uh, brands in a marketing research uh, way in order to understand how the brain reacts to marketing efforts. Although we are mainly specializing in neuromarketing, I also do a lot of work in what is called neuro HR or neuro leadership, and this is using the same devices, you know, electroencephalogram and other strange-looking. Uh, Sensors to also test brains inside the company. You know, because brains outside the company is usually the customers. Brains inside the company are the employees, the colleagues, the leadership team, etc. It's a very fascinating, um, fascinating new field which we kind of uh, uh, pioneered since four, or five years now. We develop specific tests to measure, for example, a leadership competencies within the company. I wrote a couple of books. I have them here. The first is Neuroscience for Leaders. It is translated in Chinese, two editions, two different uh, types of Chinese, Japanese, Portuguese, Vietnamese. Finally, in Greek as well. You know, I'm, I'm from Greece, so we're very happy to, to license the Greek edition as well. The second book, it is Advanced Marketing Management, which is actually the book that came out of this frustration for the inability of marketing to win hearts and minds, not only from customers, inside the company. So marketeers always have it very hard inside the company. Not many, many people trust CMOs and the marketing department, and this book is an answer, to, an answer to this. How new science and new technology can help marketers reclaim their leading role in being the linchpin between the inside world and the outside world.
0: Now, you had mentioned right there the distrust kind of uh, the marketing team. So why don't people want to talk to the chief marketing officer? And You also added neuro to everything there. What about neuromarketers? Can, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: A lot of disappointing uh, facts, which we quote in the book, Advanced Market Management. There's a study showing that 81% of CEOs, for example, do not trust marketeers, and they do not believe in the output of the marketing department. At the same time, the same CEOs uh, trust and value the work of CFOs <laughs> and CIOs. You know? So finance and technology, fantastic. More than 90% of the same CEOs trust CFOs and CIOs and 81 do not trust the marketing department, and there are so many others. like if you see uh, how long marketeers CMOs stay in the position in the same company is actually the lowest in the C-suite. So the CEO stays around seven years in the position of the CEO. The average, if I remember correctly, is around five plus years in all the C-level positions. Marketeers have the lowest, four point something. you know. Why do companies change CMOs more often than the other? C level colleagues. You know, there's so so much data that, that, that shows and, and a lot of things have been written about the problem, you know, the, the electric chair, even as as, it, as it's sometimes called, that it is the CMO position. And I think that the problem is something that I mentioned in my opening, opening words, which is market marketeers and marketing as a function, not as a department or as, as a title on your you know, business card. Marketing has to do with humans. So marketing is, if you think it from a bird's eye view, what is marketing? Marketing is this business function that tries to do two things. First, understand the market and then make sure that it delivers. So first is insights, the outside view. And then you look inside to see how you can deliver the best you can to what you see in in the market. And because it has to do with human decision-making, human experience, human behavior, you know, things like loyalty and excitement and recommendations and other things that we discussed, all these things are considered a kind of black box, not only for marketing, for all science of understanding human nature. And this the the fact that that, that the marketeers target humans. While if you notice before, I said CFOs and CTOs. A CFO, you know, deals with numbers. Whatever you put on the Excel in the night, you know, on the spreadsheet, it will be there in the morning. It doesn't have what is called in psychology internal logic. That by itself, it can change. The same with CTOs. More or less, whatever you set up in the night, you know, unless you have some freaky accident, you like electronics accident, it will be there in the morning. It cannot decide itself you know, the computer or the machine to move around. But humans do decide by them. They have this internal logic. The other systems have external logic. The excuse of marketeers was, you know, don't blame me. It has to do with my work because 50% can be science. What psychology, anthropology, sociology can tell us about human behavior and human decision-making, but the other 50% is completely unknown. We cannot, nobody can step, stand in front of me and say, I can predict 100% how humans will behave, either individually, or as, you know, as, as a collector. And these, these, we got comfortable with this. And, and you, you know, the same problem have HR people, because as marketeers deal with people outside of the company, HR people deal with people inside the company. And they have the same problem, the same 50% science, 50% art, because, again, we deal with humans. We don't deal with machines, numbers, you know, and, and uh, other, other tangible and, uh, items and or technological items. So I think that this is where we accepted defeat, and unfortunately we did not look very hard to find solutions. One solution that it was promised to us, and it's good because of what it says behind <laughs> in, in in your in your world, but it says Silicon Valley. So digital marketing, around fifteen years ago, emerged as the answer to this problem. Like if we focus on digital and we use big data and the fact that we can have real time, unbelievable of types of data that we never imagined that we can have. You know, now, I can sit next to somebody having breakfast and getting this person's opinion about the breakfast because they take a picture of it, they comment on it, they share it with somebody. Else. This is a, a paradise, you know, a dream world for for, for marketeers, understanding, understanding. So we thought that with this uh, new stream of data, the amount of data, big data, we will solve the problem of unpredictability of marketing. Of course, it didn't work like that. And there is a lot of research showing that it didn't work like that, unfortunately. Digital marketing was fantastic. It solved many problems. It revolutionized the world, but it did not by itself solve the problem of of predictability. And we jumped, all marketeers jumped into the digital marketing wagon, believing that they will find the answers. We didn't find the answers. Actually, we're looking. And we overlooked science and especially in neuroscience. Since 1980s, neuroscience is in, in increasing our understanding of human nature you know, with, with uh, a, a huge drastic increase because we, the technology, you know, fMRI, PET scan, all these weird-looking devices are actually quite recent in science. So since the 80s, we see a revolution, uh, 80s, especially 80s, and then 90s, we see a revolution looking inside the brain, our nervous system, our body, and how it interacts with the environment. We said brain, body, environment. And we understand it now much better than we could do before with more traditional sciences like psychology, anthropology, sociology. So now neuroscience is giving the answers. And this is where neuromarketeers come in. Marketeers were the first professionals within the business system to actually embrace neuroscience. And usually, if you think about it, marketers are usually the people that innovate first in companies because they are under this constant stress. They leave earlier their position, CMOs, we said. <laughs> companies change CMOs very more often than anybody else. So they're in under constant pressure to deliver. And thus, they are, you know, th- their stress and anxieties make them very open to things that are happening. So end of 90s, the first neuromarketing services, ideas, discussions, articles started appearing. And since the beginning of 2000, we have now neuromarketing as, as, I believe, one of the most promising and scientifically based answer to the most important marketing problems we have Okay, since the inception of marketing. Okay, and uh, it's it's going much better now. Neuromarketing agencies can be found all around the world. There is education, you know, university degrees you can do in neuromarketing. There's of course corporate and company training. There are books. It's it's going much better. If you ask me, I would I would like it to be even faster the adoption and the education of neuromarketing. And I think also neuromarketing is a little bit to blame for that. Okay, but uh, generally, a neuromarketeer is a, is a person that understands the methods, the tools, hardware and software, the, the opportunities and challenges that need and can be can attract the help of neuroscience and apply, this is why we call it applied neuroscience, and apply neuroscientific perspective and approaches to the problems we face with companies every day. So there is a lot of work to be done to bring it in the level that we want, but we are getting there.
0: So there was a lot there. One of the (laughs) things, one of the things I'm really curious about is your thoughts of artificial intelligence impacting marketing. And I mean, it sounds like it could be used for good or bad purposes. Can you talk a little bit about this?
1: Sure. Artificial intelligence um, was also embraced uh, by marketeers, and I think it has a lot of a good role to play. First of all, you know where where AI cannot be implemented. Can we think? human socioeconomic activity where AI either does not already play a part or it will not play a part in the future. You know, from self-driving cars to smart solutions for agriculture to, of course, you know, we go through a pandemic, to a, to a health crisis. But So artificial intelligence is becoming fully integrated, fully integrated thinking in many things in human life. And of course, marketing. Is there to use it. As we said, marketing is very innovative within companies. So artificial intelligence is, is used by marketeers. I think mostly on the communications part, although this should not be the case. Uh, of course, you know how social media are using AI. How, and this is how marketeers are using it for communications. The one is in a, in a big umbrella, which we can call audience management. So artificial intelligence help us deal with a vast amount of data with machine learning capabilities and try to understand better our audiences down to the level of the individual, <laughs> okay? And at the same time, help us develop and deliver uh, content messages that are tailor-made to, this, um, to our audience and to the individuals. Understanding, as, as I said before, you remember what I said what is marketing? Understanding and delivering. The same AI now is, is used heavily in order to understand the market, understand the different segments, the profiles and the individuals that play a role, and then help us deliver and, and create and deliver sometimes in real time messages tailor-made to the individual, to their needs and to the profiles of personas as more accurate and you know, highest effectiveness that, that we can. But that's one part. This, this, is, this is one way of using AI. AI can be used in all aspects of marketing, you know. And, and looking at marketing from a communications perspective is not complete. Marketing, for example, should deal with pricing. So, using AI to develop right pricing models, as as airlines and many other, and of course, e- 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 e-commerce platforms, you know, like Amazon, they're using it to to the highest degree, trying to find find pricing strategies or and tactics. Okay, so pricing is a very important aspect. Although you know, it is a very very sad story because there is a research that shows that. The element that marketeers, the, the element from the traditional marketing mix model of four Ps. You know, everybody that went through formal marketing uh, education, they know that marketeers deal with four Ps. You know, it's, it's product, uh, price, place, promotion. The research shows that marketeers are are responsible, are allowed to play with communications, which is promotions. The P that are least trusted with is actually price. <laughs> oh, so again, marketers marketeers have lost this battle of, of Appearing serious business partners and lead transformation, and lead transformation. They are not. Americans are not asked to lead transformation. Other other professionals, unfortunately, are asked to lead transformation. So AI is there. It's used. It will be used in the future. But for me, the question remains: When you build AI models to understand human nature, what kind of parameters? And this is a big question of AI. And uh, how robots will you know will look at the future and how we will interact with them, because we tend to forget that who we are today come from quite a big history of evolution of many thousands of years, you know, million years, billion years changing and changing and changing and changing and nature trying things and reaching where we are. So what do we think that we can do this ourselves with machines? I'll give you an example. Microsoft created a bot an online bot, and it released it a few years ago to create its own social media account and behave as a normal human being. Maybe, you, you, I think it's called the Alan Turing test, right? That if you talk to somebody that you don't realize that this is a, an artificial entity, then we have created artificial intelligence. Anyway, they had to disable it by end of day because the bot learned from Twitter how to be an uh, extremist, And a hater and a racist and a neo Nazi and all the worst things that he can be. Because we have specific, um, we call it factory ready settings when we come to life through evolution. The machine does not. The machine will, we will play the role of nature and program some parameters. And this is where I think we are both losing the game and there is a big ethical. Consideration and all the big discussion if AI is going to destroy us and become Skynet or not is because of this thing. Because we as humans, we cannot even say that we understand fully why we behave either way that we Even with all this science, and we are still not 100% sure for many things concerning who we are. But we think we can. I'm, I'm not a, a big supporter of uh, all those that, that believe that in the future. In the future, it can be in 5,000 years. <laughs> in the near future, okay, in the near future, that machines or AI will actually be human-like. It's, it's, uh, I think it's just wishful thinking and PR from Silicon Valley for more investment to fuel some, you know, either dreams or pockets. So I, if you ask most of the scientists in the field that I'm working, they have very specific opinions and they, they match the one that I just mentioned.
0: So with that, when does artificial intelligence, that when does it go from being targeted to the person, giving them more of what they want to manipulate in the user to that dangerous zone?
1: We have to draw the line somewhere, right? I mean, you have to draw a line and say from this on to that on, it's good or bad. And it's a little bit that I put it in quotation marks, difficult. Because generally speaking, to identify Something as constructive or destructive to the individual has actually to do with if this, you know, AI, effort, message, whatever it is, product adds to your general well-being in life or it subtracts from your general well-being in life. That's the way that even we do diagnosis, you know, in, in mental and emotional. You know, health issues. When are you a psychopath, or you are just scoring high in a normal personality psychopathic trait? Because you can score higher on narcissistic trait. You can score higher on the narcissism trait without having narcissistic disorder. So when a normal trait goes the other way and becomes a disorder. So when AI helping me to maybe look at my phone and see only the, the videos that relate to the videos I already watched, or on Facebook to recommend me Facebook groups similar to my, but then we create echo chambers and all the things to discuss that go wrong with social media. But where is this, this line? And this is a, a line that it's very difficult to define tangibly and uh, you know, objectively, but we can approach it we can approach this line. And we have to understand when something destroys somebody's life, makes them, um, uh, they it, it excludes them from society, makes them, it helps them or, or, or nudges them take worse decisions for their personal family and social well-being. So we have to identify when something goes from helpful to destructive. And that's actually the answer. know, that's actually the answer. And this, unfortunately, we have to see you know, from case to case. There are so many, I, I don't know, probably you watched uh, The Social Dilemma. So there's so much discussion about the problems that social media create, the anxiety, the isolation, the echo chambers, the extremism, and all these kind of things. Yes, but at the same time, we cannot ignore or put aside all the good things that social media create. One of these is me being here today with you. If it was not for social media, this would not be the case. Many businesses, smaller families started through social media. So it's 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 very as I said, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge that we should take as a society, and we should always take and create very deep, hard and necessary discussions about it. But it will be very difficult to find black and and white answers. Because, as I said, the same thing. There is research, for example, even latest, that shows that social media promote some wonderful things in our well-being. So what are we going to, to take? The negative or the positive? Or we have to identify the situation by which the conditions by which something becomes negative and not have a blanket approach where, you know, we, we apply it to everybody.
0: With that, I gotta ask, you talked about, you know, the isolation of social media, but then also the community of social media. How important are these relationships? I mean, after studying six thousand minds, I would guess you'd have a pretty strong opinion on this.
1: Um, yes, first of all, we have that, we have studied actually more than six thousand brains from from for different types of engagement, uh, real life. You know, we even do studies in real environments. Okay, now pre COVID <laughs> means um, retail environments like supermarket, banking, malls. Office spaces, etc, and of course, we have done also studies online well it, it shows when it comes to social media and our brain our own study has found that it is kind of the perfect storm because it creates a while while you are using if I'm a, an outsider and I observe you, you look very calm, serene, even a little bit bored, and you scroll down and this is not what is happening in your brain at the same time that you look kind of bored passive and, and and not very emotionally aroused we measure in the brain huge emotional arousal going to to situations of of enlightenment and and, and uh, you know extreme happiness we measure this while you look very serene but the brain is really enjoying the the experience at the same time we see very high levels of engagement in the brain you know how much the brain considers something important so both the brain finds this experience extremely enjoyable, extremely hedonistically enjoyable. It finds it very important. And at the same time, cognitive load, we measure something that's cognitive load, which is like your RAM in your PC, your laptop. The ability of working memory to keep up with all the stimuli that are coming. And we see that cognitive load is very low. So very easy, and and this is we have to complement the designers of the experience. So they made an experience, they designed an experience which is extremely easy for the brain to cruise no difficult points to make it spend more energy to make it rethink the cost benefit of using it because the brain is very stingy with its energy. You know, we have, it has per day specific amount of energy to to do the things that you need in life. So the the brain, when it manages energy consumption, you know, where will I need energy in order to make sure I have it. it's it's very careful of where to devote energy so since the social media and online experience is so easy, you don't have this gatekeeper to come and say, "Hey, maybe you should not use it, I should not use it because it takes so." so very easy um, sailing uh, experience concerning energy consumption for the brain, very high importance we measured and very a delight of, of positive positive um, attitude from the brain so this is why we called it the perfect storm. So really, social media make the brain pay attention and spend time. And some of this time can be spent for wonderful things, absolutely wonderful things, research around the world, connections with people that you lost contact from years, you know, building communities up around things that matter to you, you know, all these, all these uh, launching new business ideas, all these wonderful things. But on the other hand, you can really, uh, lose your time and you know even lose your mind. but the issue is, as I said before, are there any underlying conditions preconditions by which maybe somebody is using it with a destructive um, payback and somebody is using it with a positive and constructive payback? Now, we know, for example that uh, uh, you know people that have a specific um, a specific gene called the warrior gene no MOA, it's called if you have this when you're you are born but if you pass childhood which is very um difficult destructive and abusive then later on in life you become very aggressive you know a lot of uh, you have violence tendencies etc but only if these conditions happen with so maybe we find similar things with research on social media in the future maybe people with a predisposition to some mental challenges and mental emotional challenges, maybe social media for them probably leads to some dark places, while maybe for some other people, no. So these are things we still need to answer. There's a lot of research happening, but we definitely need more research.
0: Okay, so let's pivot the conversation just a little bit. Can you talk about how neuroscience is invading everything?
1: as i said neuroscience came to answer the questions that i was thirsty to find answers to and i could not find anywhere else because it's it's a it's a prehistoric <laughs> almost uh, you know effort for the human being to understand itself know thyself socrates famously said right know thyself to know thyself to know ourselves is the one of the one of the most noble goals of humankind. And you have you know, philosophers, you have scientists, you have religion, you have political movements, all weighing in in what makes us human. And of course, it's not only what makes us human, it's not a descript- descriptive analytics, it's actually normative, how we should be, <laughs> okay? This is why. Well, but answering the question how we should be as humans you have to answer the question what are we and neuroscience for me and i'm not alone in the world is the uh, provides the best answers is the most scientifically robust way in finally unlocking things that makes us human which means perception how do we perceive reality the world around us even the big question if there is reality to perceive how do we perceive the world around us? How we create memories and experiences of this? How we create intention and how we take decisions in order to then behavior, shape the world around us, no, shape us, shape relationships, shape whole societies. And if you think which is the science that answers to these questions, it is neuroscience. It used to be psychology, but uh, and I know by saying this many people Psychologists will not all, but many will probably be critical. Um, psychology did not provide the answers we were looking for. actually, my understanding is that even it lost its way uh, the last um, thirty years and it uh, actually pushing answers even further away than closer to us with what is called the cognitive revolution. So the cognitive revolution was a, was a big new step in psychology from the 50 s where Many psychologists uh, stop having belief in, in behavioral psychologists. You remember Pavlov and his dogs, you know Skinner, and all the, the tests that they were doing with animals to see, based on the specific stimulus, what you do, You know input correlation with output, which, by the way, is most of big data analytics. Yeah? Input versus output, and to see how it's different input creates a different output. And said, no, not only input and output. What is happening in here matters. But of course, because they couldn't see the brain, there was no technology, they stayed mostly with the mind. So they stayed mostly in, in asking me, Nikos, what do you believe? Answer this questionnaire with 50 pages. you know, This kind of, of more you know, self-expressed, self-report. And a lot of strong theories of psychology were based on what people said and thought and reflected and analyzed, which is a big no-no because we understand now with neuroscience that most of what we say is what we call post-justification. You know, like something happens and the brain does it, and then we end up just uh, trying to find excuses for it, believing in the excuses, but excuses having no connection or very little to why the brain really did it. Okay. So this was the problem of all the cognitive revolution, indeed, kind of said, okay, it's not only input-output. You know, We don't have only perception neurons and motor neurons, so input neurons and output neurons. We also have inner neurons in between neurons, in, in, interneurons, neurons that do analysis. So we have to understand the analysis. How should they say this analysis? I will ask Son. Son, what do you believe about this? And of course, that was not that was not the right way. So neuroscience finally set the light, you know, switched on the light on where we should be looking, which is eh, all this wonderful thing that it is our nervous system, you know, our brain and the whole nervous system and how it interacts with our body and, of course, how we interact with the environment. So for me, and I'm not alone, neuroscience is the third biggest uh, human-centric revolution in the history of humankind. If you believe that the first one was actually uh, Copernicus and Galileo, that they brought, you know, Earth was the center of everything, Aristotelian thinking, by the way. Earth was. Although Aristot- Aristotle was... He was for the centricity of of Earth in the system, but there were many other, Anaximander, I think, many other ancient uh, contemporaries to to, uh, Aristotle said, no, actually, Earth is just going around. But Aristotle was the brand name, so his ideas prevailed, and then they were uh, accepted wholesale by by the Catholic Church, and they became the, the mainstream Aristotelian thinking, the mainstream, especially cosmo- concerning cosmology. Then Galileo came and Copernicus and said, no, we are just another rock around the sun. And this kind of shook our egoism, you know, like we are the center of everything. And all of a sudden we realized we're not the center of everything, we're just going around the sun. And then the second big um, uh, human understanding revolution was uh, uh, evolution and uh, natural selection, because up to then we thought that we have a very special position in uh, nature. We said, okay, we might not be sp- especially in the center of the universe, but we are in the center of life on this earth. And uh, evolution, natural selection actually showed that uh, we are not. We're another species and there is kind, kind of a, um, a ra- all- almost random process by which, um, an arbitrary process by which uh, 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 nature brought us here. And this was another slap against our egoism. You know? like we are the center of everything. Uh, And the third one was neuroscience. Why? Because we might not be the center of the universe. We might not be the center of life, but at least I'm in control. At least I'm the center of me. And when I say, yeah, I, I I say me, myself, I wear, you know, understanding and experience and decision-making of what makes me, I am here. And neuroscience comes and knocks this out as well. So the, 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 the third castle is out. And of course, big questions about free will and, uh, and all and all these these wonderful discussions is in neurophilosophy now, but this is this is why you see me so excited and and I devoted my whole life into neuroscience, both in consulting academic research uh, theories, but also with um, um, applied neuroscience, actually measuring brains and nervous systems all around the world. Because I think this is what can finally show improve us, because after how long is Human society in the way that we know it today, maybe we we take it back to Babylonian times, you know first uh, first uh, writing and uh, big cities and maybe maybe a little bit uh, before maybe maybe in around um, nine thousand years, ten thousand years, where we stopped being um, hunter gatherers and and we became farmers okay and, and then by creating inevitably these big cities and big systems and politics and production. So, if you look at human history, did we really improve? Did we really stop wars? Did we really stop hating each other? Did we really stop bullying at school? Did we really? Did we really? Did we really? Did we really? Did we really save kids to die from uh, hunger? Now, now in 2021, I don't see much improvement. I mean, okay, of course there are things that improved. There, there are there are things that uh, you know we live longer. You know we have we, we have uh, airplanes and self driving cars but let's not confuse technology with social improvement uh, th- there is a difference between the tech tech medical and scientific improvement which is kind of you know goes higher effect and uh socio cultural improvement they don't match you know they 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 are not the same thing we tend to think it's the same thing, but it's not so maybe. Neuroscience is our last bet. Maybe neuroscience is our last bet. And of course, if you ask me, but can we use neuroscience and AI and all this for, for doing bad? Of course we can. Of course we can. Humans use everything for good or for bad. But at least we need to know. We need to know who we are as human beings. What triggers decisions? You know, Sean, now, the last study from, from a year and a half ago, you know that we can now measure in the brain up to 11 seconds. Before you even say, I have to take a decision, the brain generating the decision, up to 11 seconds before you say, I have to take a decision, we measure the decision being born in your brain and giving the overall direction. Out of 11 million bits of information coming into your brain through your senses, only 50 to 60, your conscious mind analyzes, 50 to 60, not 50 to 60,000, 50 to 60, period. With a, with an upper limit of 120 uh, bits per second. That's it. Where are the other million? Where we said 11 million? Where are the other million? Who analyzes? It? How are they analyzed? With what algorithms? With these are the things that we 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 were ignoring, and they're uncomfortable things to ask, you know. Because as I said, they slap, they knock out our self-centricity. The fact that we run the show, we 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 do run it, but not we as the conscious mind. We brain body environment. So we, fi- we have to find the answers. Now, how are we going to use them? That's another study.
0: Now, I have to ask throughout, you know, since Babylonian times, the 9,000 years or that, I mean, now with the introduction of technology, I would guess that it would have some impact on the brain development. I mean, is there any difference in the, the brains of say, a Gen X and a millennial? H- have those been studied and is there a difference?
1: So uh, structurally and biologically, we don't have differences in the sense that the factory ready settings of a of a we don't call it this anymore of, of a neurotypical brain is there you know and it doesn't change between you know one generation second we need thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. however, because the brain is plastic, this means that you know so when you are born you have most of the neurons you need but the way that the neurons create connections and, uh, and uh, try to develop the structure that it is the brain, it is not the same from person to person because we live in different environments with different challenges. So uh, people that live, for example, in abusive, they they spend the early years with very little care, very little love, very little work, very, and they, they live in an abusive uh, environment. The brain will say, listen, I have to survive. So let me switch off these parts Switch on these parts. For example, I will, I will exclude empathy because why should I have empathy? Empathy did not lead me anywhere. So I will, I will switch off empathy or I will, I, will, I will deprioritize it, you know, and, and, and maybe enlarge other networks, which is more self centric and egoistic. So uh, the, the brain itself, biologically and genetically, does not change so fast. What changes is how the brain learns to react. This is what what changes. And I'll I'll give you an example from our studies. We were were measuring uh, visual attention of different generations. And we found out that um, this very famous, up to now famous, millennial generation, uh, and the younger within the millennial generation, people could not focus on specific parts of what we were showing them. Though the later generation was very easily focusing on specific elements on the pictures, you know, if it was if it was in a retail online retail environment, not the price, the the younger generations, you only saw uh, with green in the heat maps. We indicate very little focus. It was full of green dots, like their brain was scanning, but did not find the motivation to stay somewhere and focus. So the brains of younger generations, especially the people that are now, you know, between, let's say, 30 and 40, maybe late, late 20s as well, they found it much more difficult to, to focus and to direct their attention and stay somewhere. And I think this has to do with the overflow of information and this overload of stimuli in our life, that the brain has the same capacity to. Grudge data as it had 1,000 years ago. The capacity did not change of the brain. We didn't change the working memory mechanics of the brain. But in order the brain to be functional and to operate healthy life, it had to decrease the time it spends on an element in order to allow to scan more elements. So there was a trade-off between focus, Towards a wider, you know, radar performance. So yes, indeed, there are many, many differences between generations, because the environment where we are uh, born and raised is different, and thus the brain learns to prioritize different, different processes, different activities, different. Of course, if you motivate them correctly, because I don't want to be unfair to millennials. If if you if you motivate them correctly, they focus completely. So it's not that they cannot focus, it's more difficult to motivate them. The, the emotional threshold shown has increased. What made my generation cry, youngest generation see and say, what, what are we doing? What are these people doing? Whether they're crying with this, you know, nothingness. So in order to excite them emotionally, you need to increase the bar. This is why, for, for example, we say in marketing, the era of blunt messages has died. You need to add to double down on emotions and motivation. Otherwise, they will not even notice it. It will, it will be a blind spot.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because, I mean, maybe that kind of puts some of the riots and that in perspective, whereas one generation might see that as over the top. The other generation might be seeing it as, oh, this is a, a correct response on, a, on an emotional level. So, so that's fascinating. But, Nicholas, I also want to go, I mean, you have multiple books you've written. One's on leadership in the mind. Can you talk about how one can train their mind to be a successful leader and how that might, have, might change over the years?
1: So definitely, um, we are, me and my co-author, we are so happy with the response to our book, Neuroscience for Leaders. And uh, this is because in that book, we identify some pillars, basic, important pillars where we grouped brain functionality, brain-body functionality, and its relation to, to leadership. You know, leadership is, leadership is natural. Management is not. So leadership can be found in very early human communities. And even anthropologists find uh, traces of leadership way back in our development. Management is is a tool. Management is a technology. Management is human made. Okay. But leadership is in our DNA. Our our ability to recognize a figure within our group, our tribe, that has the ability, has the strength and the competencies to point to a direction and lead us successfully towards this direction is what the leader and follower relationship is all about. And it is within our DNA. We are born both to be leaders and to be followers. Okay, so so this is a this is a basic human trait leadership and this is why you have now many sciences weighing in on leadership like even biology genetics there's a lot of studies in biology and genetics of course of course neuroscience a lot of studies on on neuroscience and other behavioral sciences it's because it's so natural but based on the uh, educational management and political systems we are born and raised and op- operate different aspects of this can be shut down or switch on. Okay. So what we are trying to do is, is look at what makes a wonderful leader, what makes an effective leader, which is not an easy an easy answer. There is no one leader type to rule them all, you know, like, like Lord of the Rings. There is not one, one ring to rule them all. Okay. There are, there are different leadership uh, styles that can be very effective in different situations. But in every of these leadership styles and in every of these situations, you identify that the leader behaves, creates attitudes, and speaks in ways that are effective to the group and the situation. So what we try to do with this this book and our work and the academic work and the business work is to try to understand these basic brain processes that affect the way that we connect with others the way that we create our own attitudes and fuel to our own motivation to go towards somewhere, how do we create communities, how we can differentiate between different objectives, how do we make sure that our analytics performing the highest For what the analytics will come up with depends on the situation and the problem at hand, but does the hardware work in the right way? Or, for example, we take very important decisions on Friday night where cognitive load and especially tiredness of these very important you know, system that the brain has to 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 keep to, to kind of be the gatekeeper of other urges is tired or is strong, because if you try to if if you cannot recognize in yourself the moments where you have what we call ego depletion, you know, in the willpower literature, ego depletion, where this energy and we were talking about energy before, how the brain is one of the key functions of the brain is to make sure that it maintains the. Um, uh, correct amount of energy, enough amount of energy to for the brain to perform during the day. So if you deplete this energy, you know where the brain will take fast energy from: from your prefrontal cortex, the executive brain, the part of the brain that is the brakes, is the stop, is the in- inhibiting. We call the the great inhibitor, the great stopper, things that maybe more impulse uh, or, and or as a gut reaction you want to do. So. If this, if if the brain is tired, it will deplete first energy from this part because it considers other part more important for for keeping you alive. And then you know, if you don't understand this in yourself, if you don't observe yourself and your team to see what what depletes the team of its energy and you personally, then you will not create the situation where a decision, a very important decision, is taken when you and the team are full of energy rather than depleted of energy. And unfortunately. Now, with the pandemic, uh, uh, constant Zoom meetings and the famous Zoom fatigue has created a situation where, unfortunately, engagement goes down, depletion goes up because, you know, you stay in front of the camera like this, very self-conscious of yourself, of, of how you look and what you say. How is your body? Can I do like this? No, I cannot. Well, if I'm in a meeting with you, I have much more degrees of freedom, we call degrees of freedom to move, to stay, maybe to play with something, draw something. No. Online, you have to be like that because everybody's looking at you like that. So the brain takes this new situation and says, okay, this is how we perform. But performing like this, it's very expensive for brain energy. And thus, we are, unfortunately, depleting ourselves very fast. And as I said, engagement go down, uh, team relations go down, effectiveness of decisions go down. It's a, it's a tough situation. So th- this is what neuroscience can do for leadership. Help leaders. For me and my co-author, everybody is a leader in different aspects of your life. You might be in one team, a follower, in the other might be a leader. In a situation outside your work, you can be a leader or a follower. So this leader follower is not, um, is not a formal title. It's actually um, as, as a brain strategy, a, a, a cognitive mood. You know, it's, it's a way that the brain says, aha, here. I'm a follower. I will I will listen very much as soon. Well. I trust him. I'll do ah here I'm a leader because all these kids around me expect for me to take them out. And ah, here I'm of course the brain doesn't call it leader and follower, but it creates the the cognitive approach, the brain approach to get into the right mindset and be successful in the situ, in the social situation. So everybody is a leader and a follower in very many different aspects of, of your life, but also. In the same moment, okay, in different, if you take it horizontally, in different socioeconomic activities you have. So, neuroscience can actually teach us how the brain and body reacts, understands reality, interacts with others, and thus by being aware of all this to help. I'm not saying take control because you cannot, to help, to assist, to be a body to your brain to become even better rather than to be an obstacle, an enemy of your own brain and make it more difficult for your brain to develop these wonderful cognitive and uh, other type of processes in order to be a better leader or a better follower or both.
0: There's a lot there. You had mentioned Zoom fatigue. You had mentioned mentioned a lot of things. So I got to ask, from your point of view, what has happened to people over this last year with the lockdown and how can they come out of it? What's advice for them to come out of it?
1: So this has been my number one, let's call best-selling um, content, you know, in the webinars, uh, trainings, coaching sessions, presentations, etc. Because crises like this create um unpredictability for the brain. And the brain, and many people are surprised when i when I mention this, but the brain is a predictive organ. It's extremely important for the brain to predict the future. And when I say the future, I don't only Mean one year from now. I mean the next 0.3 seconds. So, how the brain works when I talk to you and I'm trying to grab this bottle of iced tea and drink a little bit of this, in order to be successful in all these things that I do, the brain has to constantly evaluate, perceive what is happening outside, evaluate where the object is in relevant to, to me, and make sure that when I, I, I extend my arm to get it, it goes on the right place. When I pick it up, I apply enough energy to bring it. All these are predictions for the brain. Because if it cannot predict, it will not be able to assign the, the energy that it, it's needed through the body to perform the action successfully. So the brain does hundreds. Some people lately, with a new theory of intelligence, is called the thousand brains, say hundreds of thousands predictions per second in order to perform. And, and, and being able to predict correctly is very important. When there is prediction errors means I predicted this, I devoted energy, and this is not how we expected. It. it can be life threatening. It can be very simple, like dropping the bottle of, of the refreshment that I'm drinking, but it will be very important than like a car hitting me when I go outside of my building or losing a job or, or, or you know, destroying my family. So it is very important to get the prediction right. There is, some people say the brain does not like 100% predictability because it, it always has to leave space of, for learning. So there is actually uh, a very famous neuroscientist that says not 100% predictability. Actually, the brain wants to have even a little bit prediction, which is very interesting. Okay. Um, but uh, this is very important. This, this predict- predictability or prediction functionality of the brain is key. What the brain does every single second, thousands of times per second. But what happens when the prediction models fail and fail and fail And Then this, this prediction error is repeated, the brain tries different things, tries to change view of reality, tries to get some more information. This is what happens in uncertainty, in events that increase uncertainty, in a financial crisis, a pandemic, a lockdown like that. So when uncertainty exists, fear appears because fear. It's a very natural response of the brain in its threat management system, because if I cannot predict, it means that something might happen that will create a pain on me. So when you the prediction of a pain gets higher of, of an you know possible potential pain is higher, this creates fear because if the pain appears, I will experience the consequence, the bad consequence. Of the threat, which is pain, but how can I manage this? How can I avoid the threat so pain not created, or if I cannot avoid the threat to minimize the consequences? So this has been, this has been the, the main questions I'm trying to help people to answer, But unpredictability very naturally dis, disrupts the brain's ability to predict with some confidence what will happen. In order to devote right energy to right things and continue your life as normally, this uh, um, um, uh, uh, inability to give good possibilities for predictions because we don't know everything is is uh, you know is is moving everything is is uh, uh, it's in motion so I cannot be sure what will happen. Thus, I cannot assign good probabilities, credences, you know, in, in Bayesian approach. I cannot assign high credence. So I have to keep my credences low, which means until very late in the process, I'm not sure what am I going to do. And thus, more threats appear and threats are possible pain. And thus, I feel fear and fear can lead into anxiety. And anxiety is something that incapacitates me to respond to the situation the best I can. So the big challenge for people in this kind of unpredictable situations and very complex dynamic in motion situations where you cannot really predict with some degree of confidence is how to manage your fear, how to be more productive against you, how to embrace your fear and how to analyze it in a way that will help you become more ready to deal with the situation rather than allow the fear to linger, grow, find um, Corners that it can nest and create a much worse situation for your mental and emotional health. And yes, there is a way that you can deal with your fear in a productive and positive way. First of all, you have to acknowledge your fear. Fear is a very natural uh, emotion. If you don't feel fear, there is something, you know, not wrong, but something strange because we need to feel fear. Fear is a sign, and an alarm signal. And you have to understand where it comes from, What, which are the... Data that made the fear uh, you know come alive, um, what are the consequences if the pain comes, if the threat materializes, and then is when you de- devise your best strategy to deal with it. And when you have the strategy there, then you already started dealing with it. You minimize your fear, very positive processes and juices in your brain starts uh, starts develop, start develop, and you feel even better to deal with unpredictability, but it it has a process.
0: And with all the years that you've been studying neuroscience, everything that's out there, I mean, let's talk about the future. What really excites you about this field that maybe we haven't seen yet? Or what are some things that some huge tech companies are working on that might really excite you?
1: The most exciting field is brain-to-brain interaction. Or interface it, or brain to machine interface and interaction. We all heard of Elon Musk and Neuralink, and their goal of placing a chip directly on the brain. So now they do it with animals, maybe later on with humans, and allow mechanically the brain to perform some things that maybe we have lost because of a stroke or an accident or disease. But not only brain to machine interface and interaction, but also my brain to interact with your brain without necessarily our conscious parts playing a big role. The, the, there were a few studies we mentioned also in the book where there is somewhere a scientist playing a video game. And then there, there are the, actually um, uh, one, one of the scientists is, is looking at the screen, looking at the screen of a video game. And then other scientist is holding the joystick you know the, the controller for the game so the one looks what is happening in the game different parts of his brain light up what they should do with uh, with stimulation on the brain of the other person um, these signals go through internet and they stimulate the right parts of the other person and moves the joystick the controlling the right without actually looking at anything and they manage to win the game so you see that two brains collaborating, without having the same exposure to the same stimuli in front of them. And now th- this was a study w- between two brains, and so now they managed to do it between three players. You know, so it's increasing. So imagine if we connect, you know, tens of brains or hundreds of brains. This is really, you know, fascinating. I know many people are now are, are getting, uh, you know, all the alarms going off and say, oh, but this can be, you know, a, a, a very difficult and dark future for humankind. But don't forget that humans, what we can do, we do it concerning, concerning knowledge. How we apply it, I said, it's a completely different story. and actually a much more, much more positive of how we apply things. Actually, humans, when it comes to technology, we indeed use it for bad. There are bad actors, but I think mostly it's used for good. We can take any example you want. And in the end, you will see that most of the technology is used for good. Of course, there are some you know, a percentage that always will use it for bad. But the majority is used. And um, so this, this um, you know, as I mentioned, your brain takes a decision up to 11 seconds before you up to, 11, before you are consciously aware of it. So the brain does wonderful things without us getting involved. Maybe if we harness this power of the brain, this more unconscious processes which represent. 994 of who you are, you know, the unconscious process. You're only 0.6% approximately to what you do. So maybe we, we will do some wonderful things, some wonderful things. Some bad, unfortunately, I'm not sure that as human beings we can avoid. I hope we will minimize the negative effects. But I think a wonderful future is happening. And there's another, another area in neuroscience that I'm personally very interested because I have developed with my company some proprietary studies is Using neuroscience to find uh, competencies, skills, personality traits, if you want to call them. So instead of using science of tens of years, forty years, you know, psychometrics. Psychometrics is a very old science. But like you answer a questionnaire, and then they tell you you are, you know, the Big Five personality traits. You know, extrovert, introvert. I find this very outdated. To be honest. we are now slowly developing uh, uh, the ability to detect these brain strategies on things which are much more accurate representation of who you are and prediction of your future behavior and how you answer questionnaires so I think this the ability to use brain scanning and body scanning to to more accurate understand who am I today the brain is plastic it might change you know soon but who am I today I find completely fascinating I think this is the missing link this is the missing link in in what we do as human beings in society. How are we going to know who we are? How are we going to have a clearer view of of what drives our behavior, what makes us human? All the wonderful and the not so wonderful things. We're not using this science. We have to use And we have to uncover the things that we uncover.
0: And as we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about the books that you've written, the resources, something that might, you know, Benefit some of our listeners of the things that we've discussed today. And then, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, the best ways to go about doing that.
1: Sure. And, and thank you very much for that. So, the, as I said, the first book now, it's in second edition, is Neuroscience for Leaders. It's available everywhere, you know, where people buy books or, or um, uh, electronic versions of it, whatever, in whichever channel they, they want. And the, first, the, the other book is Advanced Marketing Management, is actually. How to use science to create a customer-centric organization. More than 15 years in experience in teaching and practicing marketing came in this book, and a lot of neuroscience, biology, data analytics is there. But apart from the books, um, I, I would love if people connected with me in social media on LinkedIn or in Facebook. I use both as 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 blogs. You know, I, I put a lot of of our studies, uh, many other studies that I FI find online, some ideas some videos, so I use this to communicate as much as I can to people of, of watching you what's happening in this, in this field. And, of course, everybody can or anybody can send me a message, a personal message through these uh, uh, channels in order to continue our conversation and uh, find ways to maybe collaborate and bring this science closer to you. Because there is only one way to improve. We as human beings, as persons, as individuals, our companies, and, of course, our societies which is through a better understanding of who
0: we are. Dr. Nicholas, thank you for your time today. I look forward to in the future when you visit Silicon Valley and us sit down and have a coffee together. And I also look forward in the future because I know you're going to have more books to get you back on the show. So please let us know anytime you have another book or anything coming out. We'd love to get more more information from you. This 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 last hour has just flown by. This has been amazing. And I want to thank Nick Larson, one more time for making the introduction to allowing today to happen. And with that, Dr. Nicholas, thank you again for your time today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.